there's always that sense of insecurity, that sense of uh, fear that you know, I won't be able to manage the um, manage the quality. I won't be able to. I won't get so many people. That's it. I don't want to go any further. So there's always a case of reluctance to expand. One of the most difficult things that one has to learn is to say no. If you, you can't say no, then you, you, you are the one who lands up in trouble. And you are the one who ends up mopping up the mess and uh, sort of, you know, dealing with the yeah. consequences. Thanks for joining us for Building Pakistan, a conversation with Pakistan's beloved institution builders to explore how they've built and really continue to build this young country. I'm Benji Williams from Amal Academy, and today we get to meet with Mrs. Nasreen Kasuri, who's the founder and chairperson of Beacon House School System, and formerly served as CEO for almost 30 years. She's built Beacon House into one of the largest private school systems in the world, and in today's conversation, we'll discuss with her her evolution as a lifelong learner over Beacon House's 42-year history. From the initial days as just a project and her role as really just a parent trying to give her own kids a good education, to her transition as an entrepreneur burdened with conviction and with opportunity, to her evolution as a CEO building Beacon House into the institution that it is today, and finally into her role now as chairperson. And of course, all along the way, being a spouse, being a parent, being a friend, being so many things to so many people. It's really an incredible story of how she managed to do it all and still does so much. And there's a tremendous amount from which we can learn. Should we get started? Yeah, certainly, okay. by all means. Well, fortunately, uh, you and Beacon House really don't need much introduction, and so I won't get into that so much in detail. But just to give a background for my own context, you guys have almost 200 schools in nine different countries, over 280,000 students. I think the latest number I saw was 286. I won't try to correct you because I don't have the figures in front of me. But I mean, if you've collected the figures, okay, you're probably right. Yeah. It's very hard to keep track, I think, I know. because I, things I, change I, I, on, I, I on a daily basis. I didn't know you were going basis. to be asking me numbers. No, figures, no, so I'm I, not. I, I'm just I, kind of setting yeah. the context yeah. because it's hard to comprehend these numbers. I mean, employees is around 15,000, and it's been 42 years since you started out. And as a result, you have become one of the largest privately owned education systems in the world, which is fascinating and incredible and hard to get our heads around. And so I think in order to do that, it might make sense to go back to 1975, 42 years ago. And starting back when you had set up this Montessori school, and from my understanding, you were on the first floor of your grandmother's house in Goldberg. There were about 19 kids, two of them were your own. And what I'm really curious to understand is what inspired you to move beyond just that first nursery into the next school in 77. What inspired you to move beyond just this being a project or something that was supporting your kids and a smaller community? Can you can you kind of walk us through that thought process back then? Uh, 1975, um, I was uh, out looking for a nursery school for my own children. 
and um, first time I started looking for one and obviously this is when my children were off school going age and uh, uh, I found that there was really uh, there was a vacuum there was really nothing uh, on offer and what was there on offer was uh, for early childhood education seemed uh, um, seemed totally inappropriate for three four year old uh, 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 children and I did want them to go to school but you know I, I didn't want them to go to those schools and that frustration and that uh, dismay at the total lack of uh, uh, proper nursery schools uh, uh, for young children led me to think that maybe I could do um, uh, something myself. And the reason I uh, mustered up that courage is because in my applied psychology, I had read about the Montessori system. And at that time, mm. for lack of, um, you know, more information, I would say, I thought that the Montessori was the ideal system for early childhood uh, education. And as it happened, there were a lot of Montessori schools in Karachi. And I thought, well, you know, it's the same country. Karachi's had a lot of Montessori, uh, ha has had these Montessori schools for a long time. Why not Lahore? So a lot of, a lot of things sort of happened, um, uh, fell in place in the sense that I went to Karachi to do a little bit of a survey, met with the Montessori Association uh, ladies who, as it happened, had been wanting to uh, start a Montessori school. So they thought that, you know, this was the ideal opportunity. Here was somebody who was uh, making inquiries about why there wasn't one in Lahore. So they encouraged me and I thought, well, I needed, uh, you know, I felt that Lahore needed um, uh, a good, you know, uh, school, Montessori or uh, uh, some something that supported early childhood education for my own children. So it was um, pretty selfish from that point of view. Anyway, uh, to cut a long story short, I set up the Montessori school. My own children were, um, you know, went to that school and mm. so did uh, others. Uh, we had other children as well. And uh, um, I would say that, you know, for me, it was fun and games, mm. you know, I... You were having fun. I was having fun. I was having great fun. My own children were there. They were going to school, but I wasn't separated from them. It was my grandmother's house, so I could get my cup of tea whenever I wanted to and a snack if I wanted it. So it was like being at home, being with your children and working and running a school and all the other children, the other 17 children were children of my friends and acquaintances and all that. So it was a nice clubby, comfortable arrangement. So th those were, I mean, that was uh, um, not very much like working. It was, yeah. it was like, it was very nice. It was like a club every day in the morning. You got up and you looked forward to, you know, going to work because, you know, you you had these uh, group of lovely children, two of them your own, and, you know, they, their mothers would come and drop them, their mothers would come and pick them up, mm. you would sit and have a cup of tea with them, have a chat, gossip session, and, you know. So this is exactly what I wanted to ask, is you almost were not an accidental entrepreneur, but you had the choice to keep having fun yeah. as a small project, but you then decided to kind of jump into not the misery of entrepreneurship, but certainly the challenge of entrepreneurship. These two years, in these two years, I realized what a dearth of school seats there were. Hmm. And in these two years, I realized, uh, um, realized that there was an immense need for a school. 
but because the government had not allowed the private sector to come into schools you know i was doing a nursery and you were only allowed to have up to kindergarten you weren't even allowed to go into class 1 mm. so there was um, there was this uh, uh, so this was like uh, um, you know this was this two years was like somebody who, uh, an entrepreneur who would go and do a market survey it became a lot, sort of a market survey it made me aware of the great need that there was um, for a school and how, how many children um, how um, you know let's say panicky parents were getting and i had parents asking me if i had any influence at hsm college or convent of jesus and mary or the sacred heart convent or the few schools handful mm. of schools that there were and if i could help their children with admission to those schools and i thought oh my god you know when it's time for my own children to go to school what will i do it's mm. it's going to, it's going to mean that i'll need uh, safarish mm. you know uh, you know what safarish uh, is reference yeah in this part of the world somebody sort of putting in a word for you so i realized that there was this immense need and uh, beacon house was not fun and games i mean beacon house was serious mm. now uh, the fortunate bit um, with me was that i a lot of things fell in place i had a very small group of uh, teachers and you know i was there administering it myself and then there was a um uh, there was a house available there was uh, uh, my father in law's house which in which we live now had fallen vacant the year before mm. and uh, uh, they were sort of looking at the possibility of renting it out so i asked my father in law if i could uh, um take it from him and he very kindly allowed me to this is 6 so, 6a main hall that's right, right okay. where we live now yeah. um it had been rented out for many many years it was with the iranis khanai farhang iran and it fell vacant in 77 actually and uh, 78 was when this permission was um, awarded so that that sort of you know helped uh, things yeah. quite uh, uh, quite a lot and then the other thing was that i realized that you know okay lesange is uh, um all very well because i had a lot of people holding my hand and helping me with it because you know they had an interest in doing the training in lahore so they helped me with uh, uh, mm. with getting the teachers and the equipment and you know uh, setting up and all that so i had a lot of hand holding with lesange mm. then i thought now who's going to do the hand holding with beacon house i don't know the first thing about running a school so um again um the ex principal of uh, um of hsm mr akram was working uh, um with a um with a business group and uh, he, i asked him if he could come and join me and obviously he was an educator originally and he was delighted he said yes i will resign my job and come and join you hmm. so once he agreed to join me i had greater confidence because you know at least he knew how to run a school i didn't know the first thing about running a school and um, i still remember those days of panic uh, because i didn't know i knew nothing hmm. other than the fact that i'd gone to school myself i knew nothing so akram saab came and you know all the nitty gritty of running a school and everything sort of he put in so we were able to launch uh, um, in record time we the school opened in april 2000, um, 1978 Mm. we were able to within 2 to 3 months of the permission government giving the permission we were able to open the school and 
I mean, I can just imagine it was a totally different experience than setting up Lasange de Montessori oh, yes, school. Oh, yes, completely I mean, different. W- what did you feel like when you were launching it? There must have been so many challenges. And what did you learn that first year? What was that process like? You see, I, I learned a lot. It's very difficult to say what I learned. But the point is that the panic was there because, you know, this is, um, I mean, there was, uh, there was this panic and Akram Sahib would, keep saying to me, okay, now please calm down, calm down, relax, relax, it's, it's fine, it's fine, calm down. Because, you know, I was, I would be panicking um, all the time and then I wasn't used to uh, taking pressure, um, uh, pressure for admissions. I, I, I knew that there was a market need, but I didn't know how much mm. because I opened my doors for admissions. You know, I mean, the way people came in and the numbers that came in, I, I couldn't, uh, handle it. I didn't have the teachers. I didn't have the furniture. Um, I wasn't f- prepared for it. I was prepared. I had uh, prepared myself for about 200 students. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, hordes came in. Um, and then I didn't want to go beyond class five, for instance, mm. that we had discussed that, you know, we only take up to class five and let them then um Grow up uh, one at a time, but you know I had people sitting there and crying and pleading for a class six, and then another lot for class seven, and I thought, my God! And I still remember, you know, against my better judgment, mm. I started class six and I started class seven in the first year. Or in the first is, year, and my oh, wow. God, did I struggle with them because they were most of them were dropouts, mm. and this much I did know that if I didn't produce a good result. Uh, you know, I'd be sunk. So the amount of work I had to put in with those class seven and class six students was phenomenal. I mean, hmm. it was phenomenal. The amount of money I had to spend on them. And I mean, I spent as much money on them and I, as I did on the rest of the wow. school. You know, wow. I had, I, I remember there was this, uh, uh, this teacher uh, of English as a second language and she was in uh, Islamabad. Her husband was working in Islamabad and she was with him in Islamabad. And I used to fly her out every week from Islamabad and mm. she would sit and work with these students because their language skills were so poor. Mm. You know, their language skills were so pathetic and I I thought, my God, I mean, these, these kids are not going to pass an exam. So in There's some ways you might have overstretched yourself I did I did very uh, much overstretched myself with classes six and seven and also you know I was not prepared for more than one section to a class Mm. but I I remember I was pushed and you know jostled into and then you know there's pressure from all sides and I had to do class one there were so many students for class one I thought oh my god you know where do I put them I didn't have the furniture the space nothing Mm. But, um, you know, anyway... Um, well, you know, what was year two like? What was? Year two like. I guess this was Year two, obviously, I mean, as things are, year two was better. I, I um, made some of my mistakes and I was uh, um, more composed. Yeah. And um, thing. But I'm not saying year two, I was, I was there. I was still learning and I was still struggling. And, and you were expanding within this single location or yeah, I guess yeah. within 6 a.m. Uh, expanding within the single location but you know there was such immense pressure in those days mm. because uh, um, uh, schools uh, uh, the private sector the government had you know I mean even now the government education system as you know is uh, 
um, you know, I mean, uh, pathetic. And people are looking for private schools at every level. I mean, they're not necessarily Beacon House level. They're schools that charge 100 rupees, 200, 300, 500. Hmm. So there was a lot of pressure. And then, um, and because my own uh, children, uh, I mean, are boys. So started as a boys school, again, a very sort of, you know, uh, personal decision. Hmm. Beacon House started as a boys school, but then I had girls' parents at me that, you know, why, why not a girls' school? So then we started a girls' school the Where? next, the very next year, actually. The very next started year, okay. the very next 79, year. 79, yeah. at the same, same building, just different? No, no another building, another okay. building. We rented a building. So we started a girls' school because, you know, there was this issue that you can't have girls and boys studying together. So hmm. the girls' school started. And uh, so second year had the girls school and that was a completely new venture of sorts. I mean, you could use the same curriculum, I'm sure a lot yeah, of the same teachers. It wasn't a completely new venture. Obviously, um, it was the same name, same curriculum. Hmm. You know, uh, some of the teachers, older teachers were transferred there and um, it was because uh, I'm just much wondering, easier. Like, much someone easier. might say, wait to start a girls' school until you get the boys' school established, until mm. you figure it out. And The pressure was very great in those days. You know, it was, um, the, it was the expansion in the earlier days was mostly demand-driven. Mm. It wasn't planned, um, you know, uh, people say that by... What made you go to Islamabad or what made you go to Karachi? Um, mostly, um, it was demand-driven. I mean, because this shortage of school seats was there all over Pakistan, not just in Lahore. Hmm. And, you know, uh, when Beacon House came up uh, um, in Lahore, and we were practically the first, you know, and practically the first. Because uh, um, in my case, things did fall in place uh, very easily. So I had people coming, uh, uh, you know, um, and asking if I could start a school here and a school in Karachi, school in Islamabad. So, you know, a lot of the er expansion of the earlier days hmm. was not driven by me, but it was driven by uh, the market demand. Hmm. And So did you say no to any of those requests? Or was it always just Yes, yes. One go, always go, go. said no to a lot of requests. I mean, it's you couldn't do um, everything. Uh, you couldn't go everywhere. I mean, I yeah. learned to say no. It takes time. Um, in the earlier years, I, I, I didn't know how to say no. Hmm. You know, it, it takes you time to learn to say no and sort of do it nicely, politely and all that. Um, but the, one of the most difficult things that one has to learn is to say no. How did it's, you learn to say no? You have to, you, you make like your mistakes, you make your mistakes and you realize that if you you can't say no, then you, you, you are the one who lands up in trouble and you are the one who ends up mopping up the mess and uh, sort of, you know, dealing with the yeah. consequences like the classes 6 and Class 7 six that and I started seven. simply because I couldn't say no. Um, I should have been able to say no, but I couldn't say no. I didn't know how to say no. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it takes, uh, you, you, over a period of time, you learn. Uh, those are those are things that you learn as an administrator. You mm. know, those are uh, things everybody has to learn. So you have the Montessori school, you have the boys' school, now you have the girls' school. Then what's next? Are Karachi? you expanding outside yeah. of Lahore? Okay. Karachi. So Karachi. you jump from Lahore all the way to Karachi. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge leap. 
someone might say, I don't know what it was like uh, at that time, but maybe Faisalabad or some of the other cities no, in my Punjab. sister was there, so that okay. gave me the courage. Okay. Um, she was there and, you know, she sort of... Um, so you went where you had connections. Yeah, I went where I had connections. I had connections there. there. So I went there. So it was, uh, uh, it was, you know... What was it like going to Karachi? As in, what did you learn? What was different about Karachi than Lahore? I feel a lot of entrepreneurs are thinking, should I expand to Karachi? Karachi is a Karachi, much more Islamabad. professional city, you know. I found hmm. that I got better teachers. And um, I found, you know, as far as the office staff was concerned, I got good office staff. I, I, um, Karachi is a, it's a, it's a different world from Lahore. And um, if you're if you're running a school or you're running you're doing anything, it's so much. Uh, um, it's you know you you get a, a lot of people who are prop who are trained who got exposure. Um, professionally, it's it's a, it's a much more urbane city. So mm. that way, I would say Karachi was easier. Mm. Maybe it was easier also because by that time I had uh, about two to three years experience under my belt. Okay, but so this I, was around yeah. 1980. Yeah, it's 81. A, uh, nine, 79, 80. Okay. I would say 80. I so you had a few years. You had yeah. worked out. I guess some of the um, curriculum and the a lot of things had been worked out. So you see, obviously, I went to systems. when I went to Karachi, I went there armed with a lot of uh, um, you know a lot of stuff that uh, mm. um, I had sort of you know worked out things I knew what to do, how to mm. do it, and I had a team also, a small team, not a big team, but I had a team. Mm. So um, that way, it was much easier. Mm. And when did you guys decide that this thing has potential to really scale? I mean, did that happen in Lahore before Karachi or was it once you were in Karachi? When, what was the sort of light bulb or aha moment that this could be, you know, a huge system that we can eventually become one of the largest education providers in the world? I mean, those are probably two different questions, Look, but when did you know, know this was a scalable question, thing? And basically, Benji, there wasn't any moment as such. Hmm. Um, uh, there were no ambitions about uh, um, becoming the largest in the world. And uh, uh, the fact that, you know, oh, I'm going to go to every city of Pakistan and I'm going to scale up. There was one, no one moment when one hmm. decided. For me, it was always a case of, okay, that's it. I don't want to go any further. I won't be able to handle it. There was always that sense of insecurity, that sense of uh, fear that you know, I won't be able to manage the um, manage the quality. I won't be able to. I won't get so many people. That's it. I don't want to go any further. So there's always a case of reluctance to expand. You know, I mean, I did continue to expand. Like I said, that it was very demand driven. Mm. But um, uh, there was always uh, uh, there was always that uh, insecurity and fear. You see, the most important factor in a school, in education, in an education institution is the quality of the staff that you have. And it was very difficult to get um, uh, good quality, properly trained staff. Mm. Um, you know, and then running an English medium school in a country where um, the language is uh, um, is not English and mm. it's, it's sort of Urdu. 
to find people who speak english fluently hmm. was a problem so you know somewhere along the way we decided that there was uh, uh, instead of looking for those few trained teachers we had to do our own training so we started our own training we were, again we were the first hmm. um you see we have a lot of firsts to our credit Mm. and that is what uh, um i feel has sustained us and uh, given us the advantage over other schools mm. because uh, um most other schools in the market depend upon teachers trained by us you know i mean there's this poaching game that goes on um we sort of we don't like it but then there's nothing much we can do about it mm. but we are constantly training and we have been training um we started training way back in the 80s mm. Um, we started training because we realized that you know I mean I realized that I couldn't find teachers we just couldn't find uh, trained teachers just being able to speak good english wasn't uh, um, the right qualification for mm. being mm. able to teach in a classroom so we started that so there was always you know I mean there was always that fear that uh, held me back and I'd say okay now bus that's it no mm. more mm. and then again we would start and then again it would be a case of okay that's it um uh, thing more expansion has taken place since i handed over um uh in 2005 nice, yeah. um since i handed over um there's been more expansion in those yeah. years i want to get to that and i want to get back to the teacher training piece as well but one quick kind of follow up question we met dr amjad sakib and he shared you know this idea that small is beautiful and intimate which you experienced yeah. in your in your montessori but that scale is critical especially country of such magnitude and and you have also mentioned that there were some other private schools that were functional but mostly small like missionary institutions at that time and i'm just curious what was the difference between or what enabled you to grow beacon house in a way that perhaps hadn't been done before was it the systems was it the ambition was it the i mean other people must have been feeling the demand as well and so i know you're saying like it was demand it was demand but it must have been also more than that i'm just wondering what is it the missionary schools uh, by and large up held by missionaries and of course um they're not into um expansion or mm. anything like that you know lahore had its own islamabad had its own everybody has every place they have their own missionary schools and uh, they had mission funding because as you know the missionary schools uh, fees were always on the low mm. side so they had they used to have mission funding and things like that so they could only only expand as much as their funding allowed them to they mm. couldn't really expand uh, beyond that so in my case obviously it was very demand driven also but there was all the fear was there the fear was there it's like when you're walking in the dark the fear is there but you do keep walking you mm. don't stop you know and so the fear the uh, the panic was always there mm. will i get the teachers will i be able to manage will it uh, uh, will it work um you know that that uh, fear and insecurity was always there mm. but then um i did keep going so um my expansion was uh, a little more slow and you know i my i was i was building my systems and things like that in those days and once my systems were done 
once my systems were done, I had done, done my curriculum, I had done my management system, the people were there, then expansion was not so much of a problem. You know? And I had my training, I was training my teachers. So all the issues which created uh, insecurity, I, I addressed to some extent. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I feel this is what we as growing enterprises struggle with the most, is building those systems. I have systems. mentioned that. How do, how, management, how do systems, systems? management systems. Management huh. systems. Because you need a good management system to uh, be able to manage uh, more than one. You see, one institution, you, you manage yourself, you're hands-on. Mm. And that's not, you don't need any management system as such. You, you know, you're hands-on. But from one to two, you need some um, some management uh, um, system and then three and four. Mm. So your management systems um, have to be, uh, you know, well-designed, well-defined and everything. Then um, the, the major uh, requirement of any school is teachers, mm. good teachers, good so trained teachers. So we had our, we training. had our training yeah. that we, uh, we did. And the, so a lot of these things had been streamlined. So mm. you know, then, then I, you know, then meeting the need and the demand was, you know, if I didn't do it, somebody else would do it. So why shouldn't I do it? Mm. If there was a vacuum, then I, I would want to um, step into that vacuum because mm. I had the wherewithal. And just to get a bit granular, were you involved in building those systems? Did you bring on someone who's like an ops person? What did that kind of look like for someone? Look, who I was be? not. Um, I was not a qualified um, a manager. I mean, I hadn't done my MBA or anything. Mm. Uh, whatever I was learning, I was learning on the job. But yes, I did bring in people. Mm. I one of the people that I brought in to help me um, was a consultant, uh, uh, Frank Garvey Williams from, and he came twice and he wrote these manuals and he sort of you know, he's the one who advised me at. Uh, for better management, you have to now divide uh, um, the schools into three regions, north, mm. center, and south, and set up uh, their own offices. So he made out these manuals. At that time, we were, what, about 15,000 students? Not more than that. Okay. So, yes, I did bring him in, and he, was, uh, he helped me out. Um, and uh, otherwise, local advice also one was taking, you know. And another big... Uh, um, I would say a good fortune that I had and Beacon House had is that it was mostly women and I find um, I find it so much easier to work with women. Mm. Why? Not simply because I'm a woman myself but I find that women are more committed, more dedicated, they have greater integrity, greater commitment. So I've you know had that. Sorry don't want to get gender specific, but that is the case. <laughs> no, I worked with women. I, I, I read that uh, about 60% of your staff is, is women, yeah. and I think that's a, a testament. I mean, that, Beacon House they, as they an institution see, is a are, testament too. Teachers, uh, mostly teaching profession is favored by women, hmm. and that's why 60%. But otherwise, in our senior positions also, we have a lot of women. Hmm. Um, I want to get back to that idea as well. But last question on the systems building thing. Um, you said that you said somewhere that you knew that you could achieve a lot more if you were to devise the systems whereby you delegated the work so that individual schools could be run as systems with benchmarks. 
and on your timeline in the in the front office it shows that by 1993 you were at 50 schools which is pretty incredible to think that from 77 technically 78 yeah, yeah 78 to 93 you were able to build these 50 schools and was it 50 yeah i was also surprised that yeah. that amount of growth happened and so Related to that, in 2002, you started The Educators, which is a franchise model. And a lot of entrepreneurs, probably especially investors, are excited about this idea of franchising. And I think as your journey shows, you know, you've carefully gone into franchising, as in you've spent a lot of time before getting to that point. And so I'm curious, you know, how did you know 2002 was the right time? And what did you do in order to try and help ensure that the systems you built were adopted by these franchises uh, so that the quality, as you pointed to earlier, was not... Benji, you know, there's a thing called instinct in this country um, because uh, things are not that well, um, you know, documented and you don't have figures and things like that. that You get all the... So there is, a, uh, uh, there is a lot of things that you do with instinct also. And uh, it wasn't as such that I knew that 2002 was the right time. It was just that I had been looking at, uh, I realized by that time that Beacon House was becoming quite expensive for a lot of people because, you know, the fee level um, was going up. And uh, I felt that we should have a middle tier um, school. And a lot of discussion took place and all that. And we realized that, you know, if you're going to do a middle tier school, maybe it's better to do a, a franchise system rather than run them ourselves, which, uh, which is obviously much more difficult to um, uh, run the schools in smaller places and all that. Mm. So we, um, we spent, uh, uh, spent a good year developing all the manuals and systems for the, uh, for the school and uh, um, launched the school in the earlier, earlier years, earlier one or two years, People weren't quite sure what it was, you know, people weren't used to um, a franchise chain of schools. So, you know, it was difficult to explain to them. Um, And uh, it was the first two or three years were slow. And then, you know, people started um, understanding. Now in the last four or five years, uh, every year you see two or three people jumping into the market with some franchise school uh, um, uh, thing. But they're not able to sustain it as well because, you know, we went slow. Hmm. We, we were slow and our systems are developing. We were making our mistakes, correcting ourselves, you know, hmm. learning uh, things. So, you know, our, our, learning, uh, um, our learning took place uh, um, on the field hmm. and we learned. And then, you know, you, you get in franchisees who are sometimes not right. You talked about training. Teacher training is obviously a big part of that, but staff training is obviously a huge need. Yeah, I, I mean, everyone knows, I, I think probably every entrepreneur knows how important training is, and yet it's very hard. It's not like you just decide, I want to teach this skill like critical thinking or problem solving or initiative or punctuality or time management, and then you develop a program and that person develops those skills. What have you learned 
I mean, obviously as an educator, but even more so like with your team, your management, your staff, and, and your teachers, have you learned anything that works really well? Have you learned anything that certainly doesn't work? What are some of the lessons, maybe mistakes, maybe successes you've had with training? Look, with training, uh, people have to be motivated into it. People have to be motivated into it. And when, when my staff was training, I was training myself too. Hmm. In everything in the earlier years that I uh, expected of the staff, I was in it myself. Uh, they welcomed it mm. because they were also struggling. So, you know, it wasn't as if I was having to push it um, onto people. I wasn't forcing people into it. They, they were happy to uh, for this opportunity. They are working and they are training and at the end of it, they get a certificate also, which mm. is... Uh, you know, which is something, which is the type of thing which is available in the West, where you come from, California. Mm. A lot of people have, you know, you have night school and you have on-the-job training and you have a lot of things, uh, opportunities available, which weren't there in this country, which are still not there. In, in terms of managing your team and especially the people reporting directly to you, is there any one who sticks in your mind as someone who you were able to really help reach their full potential? in terms of managing them and developing them. What did you do? What did you learn? Um, it, can that be extrapolated into a broader lesson for how to develop? There are, there are many people. Um, I feel that I helped them reach their potential. Um, I wouldn't like to take names, but um, the point is that there are many people who, uh, for one reason or another... Um, what did you do? What do you feel was the difference? Trust them. Trust them and encourage them and uh, give them responsibility and tell them that, look, you can do it. Mm. I mean, don't, uh, um, uh, uh, don't sort of shy away from it. You can do it. You have the capacity to do it because, you know, I, I saw in them that capacity to be able to do something. So you trust them with responsibility. Mm. And uh, um, I think, you see, you, when you work with people, you you can uh, you can tell that okay this person has the capacity to do it this person doesn't have the capacity to do it and the person who has the capacity to do it has to be encouraged and trusted mm. uh, to do it and they, and they do it perform. As, I, I think trust feels like a, a prerequisite and then my question is is it enough or is there a risk that if you trust completely then you're abdicating and not necessarily supporting that person along the way. So I'm sure you probably trusted well, them, but do, then you do gradually. Kind of I mean, guided it, I, there's a time when you step back. Even when I handed over to Kasim in 2005, for many years I was very insecure and I was constantly snooping around mm. uh, to find out what he was doing and why he was doing it and how he was doing it and all that. Trying, uh, you know, I mean, it, a difficult exercise not to make him feel uh, um, like he's not trusting, but at the same time, I had the insecurity. Mm. So, you know, it, it takes time. It, it's a process. Human beings are so different. Mm. They are so different. Thankf it's, thankfully, they're different. You compare yeah. one to the other. What was that process like of, I guess, um, kind of transitioning? How did you know that 2005 was the right time? to step into the chairman role and to allow someone else like Qasim uh, to come in as CEO? And, and how did you help make sure that transition was 
smooth or as smooth as it could be. You see, 2003, my husband became a minister. Mm. Even though I didn't go with him to Islamabad, I stayed on here. And uh, I decided that, oh, I now have time. Because, you know, he's, as you know, he's a politician and I led a very, very um, busy life, my work and then his politics. You know, I finish my work, go home and then there are the children and then his politics and political entertaining and all that. So, so once he became a minister, uh, it seemed like I had time on my hands. So I went and joined an MBA program. And once I did that, I realized that it was a lot of work, you know, doing an MBA was no joke. And so, and then uh, the fact that I didn't go to Islamabad didn't mean that I didn't have official duties mm. at all. I had to, from time to time, uh, go to Islamabad. So I sort of, you know, I realized by about 2005, I realized that I was not able to handle the situation. So I know what do I do? So I decided that, okay, this is the time to hand over. Mm. Because instead of sort of, you know, like uh, juggling and letting Beacon House slip, I wasn't going to, I uh, was not going to step out of my MBA uh, thing. I joined it and I was going to go, go through with it. I, and my husband's uh, um, commitments uh, um, to my husband, I even if I kept them to the minimum, you know, there was some commitment that they were there. So I couldn't serve, I could reduce them, I couldn't really totally cancel them out. So the only thing that would end up suffering would be Beacon House and I didn't want Beacon House to suffer. So that was when I handed over. Hmm. If it had, if I hadn't joined the NBA, my hus her husband hadn't become a minister, I may have gone on for another couple of years, hmm. um, two or three years. But at that time I thought that, you know, I, I was struggling. I was not able to manage yeah. three I wanted to ask um, kind of a last group of questions really just about your own personal um, work ethic and how you manage your time and how you manage so many, some of the routines that have allowed you to be successful or that you have learned a lot from. And I guess the most obvious question is, how are you able to do so much through Beacon House and beyond? It's it's hard to even summarize everything under the umbrella. And so I'm wondering, probably not now, but like in the height of the busyness for you, um, how were you able to manage all of the work and, and what percentage of the time did you spend doing things that like you really enjoyed in work versus things that you had to do because you just had to do it. There was no one else to do it. I've led a very busy life, yes. Um, and it's not just because of vegan house, it's because my husband is in politics and uh, politics, you know, starts in the evening, by and large, they mm. start their meetings. So, you know, I would finish my work and go home and there would be people there and uh, something or the other would be going on and over the weekends and everything. So, you know, it's sort of like, it was like a 16, 18 hour uh, day. It's been a very busy life and, uh, um, but, uh, you know, I mean, you devise systems as you go along, you know, you don't, uh, there's no book that tells you what you're going to do. Mm. All of us have different lives and different environments 
and as you go along you devise your systems you know all right you know you do it this way or you do it that way or this is working and that is not working a bit of trial and error and everything i've never found a book that uh, um, that could sort of tell me how to do things i'm a, i'm do you, i'm do you a, have any like routines that you i have i have done one thing uh, about me um, is that i am a disciplined person hmm. i believe in discipline and i believe in routine uh when i was working uh, when i was the chief executive i made sure i was never late i was here 5 minutes before um, you know time mm. i ran a school also for the first few years i used to run a school and i was never late for that and that was one thing i expected of my teachers and then in my office i expected of my staff that please don't be late mm. and don't look at your watch and um walk off finish finish the work on your table If you have to stay an extra half hour, 40 minutes, do that. I, I, I um, you know, discipline is important. Hmm. Discipline is important, and that's one of the reasons why you know this is a question that a lot of people have asked me because my husband is so active in politics. And have you never thought of politics? And no, I have never thought of politics. But because in politics there is no discipline, and there's a lot of flexibility, and I'm not flexible. Mm. I'm not a flexible person. I I I believe in discipline. If if, if you are going, to, if I give somebody an appointment, I want that person to be on time. If I have to go somewhere, I want to be on time. I expect my st- staff to be on time. And as long as I was uh, in the riding seat, people were not late. Mm. You know. But uh, um, I turn a blind eye to it now. Mm. but the point is that uh, um, so the two things that are that are things that i haven't learned but that, that are part of my personality hmm. is uh, uh, discipline and good or bad but i'm a little inflexible hmm. so both those things are never in, inflexible hmm. like and how do you adjust for for that i mean Look, I think I, a lot of entrepreneurs are inflexible. I know I have to, I know I have to make compromises sometimes, but most of the huh. time, if I make a decision, once I've made a decision, I don't easily change my mind. I may, I it's a well considered decision, and I don't then because there are always other points of view. Hmm. There are always other points of view. You have to decide one way or the other. You have to make a decision. Once you made a decision, then stick by it. Hmm. it's a um you can always be wrong i mean um nobody is always right and i have not always been right in my life but once i make a decision obviously i take people into um uh, confidence and we sit down to make a decision once i make the decision uh, you know most of the time people will recommend that you take a decision which is the easiest uh, way out which is the root of least uh, resistance Hmm. Sometimes that's not the right decision. Sometimes you have to take the more difficult decision. Hmm. And once you've taken that, then it's best to stick by it. Last question that I have for you. I, I'm fascinated how you got your MBA in 2005, and. I think it just speaks to the type of person you are and the type of institution you've built which is centered around this idea of learning and and more specifically on on lifelong learning. And so I'm just wondering 
like, today, these days, how are you exercising that practice of being a lifelong learner? What do you do in order to continue learning? What did you do as a CEO to continue I'm to develop CEO, yourself? I'm not CEO, I'm chairperson. I'm, I'm saying yeah. before, how did you continue I'm to develop I'm a chairperson and, and the MBA helped me a lot. The MBA helped me a lot, a lot of things. You see, when you do your MBA after you work for as long as I had worked, um, it's uh, um, it's very exciting because when you're doing your MBA, you realize that a lot of things that you were doing are things that that they're that telling you to do. You, yeah. you have by uh, you stumbled upon those practices. You sort of you know by trial and error, you stumbled yeah. on the practices that they they're recommending. So that makes you feel uh, good. And there are so lots of areas where obviously you say okay. So this is what I should have done, you know. You, mm. you, so it's a lot of you relate to what you've done. And then obviously um, some of the things that I um, never knew uh, and I never thought made the effort to be accounting, finance, you know, I mean all those terms, those fancy uh, terms which people used to, um, uh, when you know, in the course of discussion with bankers and all, they would use all these fancy terms and I would say, oh, now... What did that, does that mean? So, you know, you learn what those fancy terms mean. Hmm. So you, you do finance and you do, you know, you do accounting. I mean, you don't do accounting as in a chartered accounting, but you do the basics. So you, you understand the debit credit and all that. So you understand a lot of those things. So it's, it, was a, it was a very interesting experience for me, very hmm. interesting. And also because see, the MBA that I did was not a full-time MBA. It was, a, um, it was, it's called the Triumph MBA, which is three universities and you go to different countries and you do six weeks and six weeks and you meet a lot of people, mm. um, mid-management people from different parts of the world. So, you know, uh, it's a part of the networking also and mm. interacting with people, sharing experiences. You see, being an entrepreneur and being, um, uh, being a CEO as I was is, being, is very lonely. Uh, in many ways because you don't get to you know you don't have colleagues in that sense to share with you have a lot a large number of people that uh, work uh, for you but um, uh, it, you know sometimes uh, um, you can't share good bad practices with people so that way that g gives you that opportunity mm. that gives you and I would recommend uh, um, I would recommend my sons to do that was it was this the only chance you had to be a part of a network or I mean I think a lot of entrepreneurs do feel that isolation and they're wondering you know how can I do I have to go to the extreme of doing an MBA or are there some practices that I could do perhaps to connect with people or oh, yes, learn or learn yes, as, I'm, as, as I'm going she, along the journey. Benji, my situation was a little bit unique in the sense that, um, uh, you know, I had, like I said, I had a 16-hour day. A man, um, I, mean, I don't have a wife, let's put it like that. I, I do my work, I go home. I have a house to run, I have children to look after, I have a husband who has politics. So I'm sort of like working um, like 16, 18 hours and I'm not saying that I'm slaving away, I'm enjoying a lot of what I'm doing. But I have very little time to, to interact with and engage with people at my level. I don't have, um, I didn't have too much of that luxury. Hmm. It's a different. Uh, um, it's a different situation. You see, most men uh, who are uh, um, uh, 
um, at that level you know they they are members of associations they sort of you know contest elections in those associations they they meet with each other they interact yeah. i i couldn't how i found you find it difficult that? to be how did you find that support then before the mba i mean 2005 was you had been working for over 30 years at that point yeah. so those 30 years how did how were you able to find that support and that learning a lot of i mean uh, things different ways occasional ways i mean i had a lot of friends mm. i would interact with my friends i i had some very good friends um that i would uh, uh, i would talk to i would interact with and all that i couldn't really be part of uh, that clubby situation yeah. i just didn't have the time and then you see what i found um it was rather funny actually that um, because there aren't that many women working now there are more of course at my time there weren't enough women working they don't have um uh, they culturally if i go to a bank they find it awkward to put me into a waiting room where men are sitting and smoking and chatting and loudly so they they would like to put me in a room where the, you know just more They don't, they don't have ladies waiting rooms mm. and they, so i used to when i went to a bank to see somebody they would put me into somebody's office because the main waiting room had a lot of very rowdy men sitting in it and they thought mm. that you know i wouldn't want to be sitting with them which i wouldn't i remember going to the cbr once uh, fbr now it's known as to see the chairman and they there was total panic there because they didn't know where to put me they while i was waiting for him um to meet with me so they took me into his office and he was sitting at the far end um with some visitors and i was made to sit on the table uh, this end um obviously because they just didn't know where to put me hmm. you know being a woman they 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 had that problem that where, where do um, uh, there's no waiting room for women and you know there's this concept you can't put men and women together so that sort of thing so you know there's there was that uh, uh, interesting challenging sometimes annoying it's so incredible it's, uh, see working in this country has its compensations as a woman has its compensations and has its uh, um Issues also, yeah. and you have a lot of people who are sometimes very patronizing, which is very annoying. Um, not anymore now because I'm so much older. But in my younger days, there was that patronizing attitude, mm. and which 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 is what I used to find annoying. Mm. But uh, at the same time, uh, they did uh, um, uh, make concessions for a woman, which they don't do in the West, you know. in the west if you're in a bus and you're standing nobody will get up and give you their seat here they still will do that um they they'll still give give you their seat if i'm you know, on a pia thing if i'm in the bus you know and i'm standing somebody will get up and give me their seat so they do make a to do because if i go to see a banker in in those days i used to go see and he had six other people waiting but he would see me first Mm. get rid of her <laughs> see her have her go <laughs> it's incredible you know, it's incredible um yeah. i'm so glad that you have uh, paved the way for for so many um it's an inspiration for us it's it, your journey of being a lifelong learner has i think 
just created these huge ripple effects throughout the country and throughout the world. But thank you so much, Mrs. Kasuri, for, for your journey, for sharing parts of it with us, for taking out the time and for continuing thank the work. Thank you for coming, Benji. It's nice talking to you. Thank you so much.